You might be wondering, what does a lion have to do with, uh, I forget what you call, call those baskets? Cornucopia. Corp cornucopia. cornucopia. Thank you, Jim. What does a lion or lions have to do with a cornucopia? Well, because we're in the month of Thanksgiving, we see a lot of cornucopias and a lot of festive things. And this month, I thought we could start a new series called Thanksgiving in the Old Testament. Thanksgiving in the Old Testament. Some say that Thanksgiving first started when the pilgrims landed here in America on Plymouth Rock, met the natives, and then they shared food with each other. They shared knowledge with each other. Uh, the natives showed the new immigrants on how to plant food, how to farm land. They showed them the land. But I like to think that Thanksgiving did not start here. It started in the Old Testament. Thanksgiving in the Old Testament. We're going to look at three characters during this month. Today we're going to look at Daniel's story and how we find Thanksgiving in the lion's den. Hence the lions with these other items. Next week, we'll look at Hannah's story, and then the last Sabbath, um, we will look at Jonah's story in regard to Thanksgiving. November 19, just a quick preview, we have Chaplain Dave. He's going to give the sermon on November 19 on the third Sabbath of this month. Uh, and then for the other Sabbaths that I'm here, we're going to be looking at Thanksgiving in the Old Testament. Our key text for this morning is found in Daniel chapter 6. You might actually want to turn your Bibles to there because we are, we are going to stay in that chapter the entire sermon, in the entire sermon time. But our key text is Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And it says here that three times a day, he, that being Daniel, got down on his knees and prayed, giving what? Giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before in past times. So three times a day, Daniel got down on his knees and prayed. That was morning, midday, as well as evening. It was customary of people of that time to pray three times a day. So that's a question for you and me that needs to be asked is, how often do you and I pray in a given day, in a given week, in a month? Daniel did it three times a day, got down on his knees. That part where it says that he got down on his knees tells me that it was intentional. Do I believe that you can pray in any way at any time? Yeah. I could be walking down the street and I might be afraid of something and I can pray for God to protect me from that dog that's chasing me who might just lick my leg anyways later down the road. That's okay though, just pray with your eyes open. Or I might be hiking in the mountains of Colorado and then I see this beautiful scene and all I can think of is praising God. That's okay to pray at that moment. 
But what is significant about Daniel getting down on his knees to pray? That takes intentionality. It takes time. It takes him being intentional and taking a part of his room to kneel and to pray to God. And his prayer, I believe he shared his burdens to God. I believe he shared his concerns. I believe he shared his joys. But at the same time, he also gave thanks to God. He prayed to God to give thanks. That's your thanksgiving right there. Now, the Hebrew word here is yada. The last series, I gave you a Hebrew word called yada. Yada means to know, to thoroughly know. Yada means to give thanks, to give praise. So don't confuse the two. If you forget it, that's okay. Yada means to give thanks, to give praise. They're synonymous. In the Hebrew word, it's not different. For us, we have thanks, we have praise. But to them, when, if you're offering thanks, you're praising God. If you're praising God, you're giving thanks. If you caught the song that we sang a couple of uh, songs ago, it's about praising God. Thank you for the Palmers leading us out on that song. That's the theme that I want us to focus on for the next few weeks, giving thanks to God. Now, let's go into the Bible. Let's go to the story of Daniel chapter 6. This is such a special story because Daniel chapter 6, you've heard this story many times, especially when you were kids. Uh, this is probably one of the earliest stories I remembered as a, as a toddler. Maybe I, was a, um, maybe I was a little older. Maybe I was four. But I remember this story from Sabbath school class. I remember our teacher singing the song, um, Jaws, Jaws, Lions, Jaws, Roaring, Crunching, Lions, Jaws. I forgot the rest of the words, but, but that's the part I remember. And, and I was scared of that song as a kid. Our teacher would sing that song right before she would teach us the story of Daniel in the lion's den. So we come to Daniel chapter 6. We have a Thanksgiving story in this chapter today. But I want to read this story in a different way. How often have you read this story or heard this story from the perspective of Daniel? You may have even found yourself putting yourself in Daniel's shoes. Because we've often heard the story in a manner where, well, life can be like the jaws of a lion, right? We might find ourselves trapped in a dark, decrepit place. We might feel abandoned by God. We might feel abandoned by people. It's always in the perspective of Daniel. Today, I would like to propose that we look at this story from the eyes of Darius the king. Okay? We're going to look at this from the eyes of Darius the king. So, Let's go ahead and take a look at verse 1. It tells me here in the Bible, it says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout his kingdom. 
Now, we're looking at this from the eyes of the king. Now, who was Darius? Darius was the Persian king who recently, in this story, conquered Babylon. Uh, Babylon. If you read the preceding verse, actually in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30, it tells us that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So Darius, or you're going to hear me say Darius, Darius, um, tomato, tomato. Uh, Darius comes into this kingdom of Babylon, or takes it over from Belshazzar, and the Persian army, because of this, now grows, okay? So Darius looks upon his land, looks at his kingdom, and he realizes this kingdom has now gotten larger than before. So he appoints 120 satraps. I want you to think of them as like governors, okay? Governors to rule in the land. So he looks at his land and he realizes it's vast. How vast is it? Well, let's put into perspective. From west to east, from Greece to India, it was 3,200 miles. The Persian Empire was from the eastern borders of Greece, 3,200 miles further east to the west borders of India. That's how vast it was. And then in regard to north and south, it was 1,700 miles from the southern tip of Egypt going all the way to Thrace, which is now modern-day Bulgaria. Now, yeah, you're giving me numbers, Edre. You're giving me miles, and, uh, but I still can't picture that on how wide 3,200 miles is. Well, here's the United States of America. According to worldatlas.com, it says this, from the state of Washington in the northwest all the way to Florida in the south, it's 2,802 miles. So doing your math, the Persian Empire was 400 miles wider than USA. And as far as north and south, USA is 1,650, 1,650 miles. So the kingdom of... Darius was even 50 miles um, taller, I guess, not taller, um, more vast going from north to south. This is a large empire, right? So for Darius to rule it by himself, he needed to appoint satraps. He needed to appoint governors. It tells us here in the Bible that he appoints 120 satraps, to rule throughout the kingdom. Now, overseeing these satraps are three administrators over them, okay? So it sounds like he divided his kingdom three different parts. In each part, there was an administrator, and one of those administrators was named Daniel. Daniel. Now, let's get context to the story, because context is very important. He just came into power in Babylon, um, Darius. And so now he wants to know, who can I trust from the previous regime's advisors? Who can I trust? 
who comes into the picture? Daniel. Daniel's reputation precedes him. Therefore, Darius says, I don't want you gone. If anything, I want to promote you to be an administrator of one-third of my country, of my empire. Does this paint a more realistic picture of what Daniel's influence must have been like? That's what Darius does. Because of what Daniel had done previously in serving Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and the previous Babylonian kings, Darius knew about him. Darius knew what he was able to do. I think that's pretty cool. Here's a fun fact that Daniel, up to this point in the story, we know he is in his perhaps early 80s to, to mid-80s, perhaps close to 90s. The reason why we know that is because we know, historians know that 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came into Judah and took him into captivity, took Daniel into captivity. At 605 B.C., many believe that Daniel was 17 years old. And when the Medes come in, when Darius comes in to conquer the Babylons, it's 539 B.C. So the difference between 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. is what, 66 years or so? Adding the 17 years of how old Daniel was when he was taken from his homeland, brought to Babylon, we get the number 83. So roughly around that age. How old is Darius? 62. He must have had a good diet, right? Yeah, Daniel chapter 1. So Rick is correct. We'll do a series one day on Daniel because I think the reason why he was wise is because he took, took care of his body. You know. So it tells us in Scripture that Darius is 62 and Daniel is early 80s. We'll say 83 for the sake of it. Darius looks up to Daniel. Now, these are two different men of two different cultures. One's a Persian, and one is a Hebrew. But Darius is willing to take advice from a foreigner. This makes some of the other politicians in the throne area or in the court room of uh, Darius they don't like this idea that Daniel is being placed in such a high position. So you know the rest of the story. The preceding, or not the preceding, the verses afterwards tells us that these satraps, prefects, and governors try to look for some type of blemish in Daniel. It's kind of like what we see in modern-day politicians where they get nasty with each other. They try to find dirt What's Pelosi all about? What's Trump all about? Let's bring it out to light. But you know what's beautiful about Daniel's story? They tried everything they could, and they couldn't find anything against Daniel. Exactly. Yeah. That is, that is what an honorable life is, that you live such an honorable life, a life full of integrity, 
that if someone was going to try to find dirt on you, they can't. You're unblemished. And of course, that can only happen when you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, when you follow God's precepts, right? You follow God's will. And that's what we get in Daniel's story. So Jonathan is correct. Because they can't find anything, anything on Daniel, what do they do? They decide to, to fool the king, Darius. They go up to the king in verse 7. It says that the royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and governors all agreed that the king should, number one, issue a new law, issue an edict, and number two, enforce this new law. That anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, Darius, should be thrown into the lion's den. Well, if we're not going to find anything on this guy, we're going to change the rules. And then we're going to throw him under the bus. And did you realize how they decide to change the rules? They deceive the king. They lean on the king's vanity in order to make a new law. All the while, what Darius is thinking in his mind, because he, in that culture of that time, when kings came to rule another country, they were sometimes seen as a deity. They were seen as divine. Up to this point, Darius had not considered that. So what do the prefects and, and the satraps and the governors do? They, they appeal to his vanity. They say, they, they tell Darius, I think this is how it happened. They tell Darius, look, you have just conquered the Babylonians. Your, your land goes from east to west about 3,000 miles. You must be a god. You are truly the king of kings, Darius. Therefore, in the next 30 days, we need to celebrate this divinity of yours. We're going to celebrate it. And if anyone else prays to any other gods, if they don't pray to you, then their penalty is death. As Christians, do we see that happening in our country today? I mean, we see laws overturned left and right for what? Is it really for the sake of the people? Or is it for agenda purposes by a certain few? I'm not going to get into that today, but that is something to consider. So we're looking at this from the eyes of Darius. Upon hearing this, he was pleased. Verse 8, it says, Now, O king, issue the decree and put it into writing. So what does verse 9 tell us? It, he must have liked it, liked the idea. Because in verse 9, it tells us, So King Darius puts the decree in writing. If something is in writing, it means it's official. It's now a law. Now, Let's go back to verse 10, our key text. What does it tell us that Daniel does every single day? He prays to God three times a day. Just as he had done before. Meaning, that's a daily occurrence. That's what that phrase means. Just as he had done before. So in verse 10, this is actually 10b. 
but let's look at 10a in our Bibles. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, that it's been written, that now it's law, once he learned this, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And then this is where we get this part of the text. It says, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, to his God, just as he had done before. So the context of this is that he is not praying when times are glorious and peaceful. What's he doing? He's praying when times are tough. Just when this law has been passed, that if anyone else is caught praying to a different God and not praying to Darius, they're going to be put to death. What does he do? He doesn't change his habit. He faithfully goes up to his room like he has been every day because in that room, that's where he has fellowship with God. Where do you have fellowship with God? Is it a corner of your house? Maybe when I was in college, Southwestern, it's when I was actually changing my life around. I was going from my little wayward ways, and by the time I got to Swahu, my, my uh, professor said, you need to find your time and place with God. Time and place is what he told me. And I found out that my special place with God was a little bench at the edge of the university, of Southwestern Adventist University. If you know Keene, there's that little pond, we like to call it lake, but it's a really a pond, uh, that has a baseball field around it. And then in that, uh, right outside the baseball field are some benches and tables. That's where I always wanted to go and have my devotions. I made sure I did that. And some days, I, you know, I wasn't faithful like Daniel. And for the times I, I, I missed out on it, I remembered that's when I felt or anxious, right? I felt uneasy. But I, I tried to follow that. And whenever I did follow it, that's when I felt life just made more sense. He didn't change his habits. Even when that law was passed to only pray to Darius, what does Daniel do? He goes to his special place at that special time to pray to God. Well, you know what happens. He's praying right next to a window, and I'm sure these satraps, these governors and prefects have a spy or spies, and sure enough, they see Daniel praying to Elohim, and they report this to D Darius. And then Darius finds out that, whoa, one of my advisors, trusted advisors, broke the law. He's stuck in a situation because he doesn't want any harm to come to Daniel. Now he has come to the realization, he has an epiphany that what the satraps, prefects, and governors told him to do was just to set Daniel up. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Bible tells me here that when the king heard this, verse 14, he was greatly distressed. 
He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him, but it was impossible because the, his, his other advisors, those satraps, prefects, and governors, came back to him and said, you wrote that in, in, in law. And whatever Persian king has written something in law, you cannot, you cannot turn it back. And so what ends up happening is Darius realizes he doesn't have it under control. Look what verse 16 says. Going against his own judgment, going against what his heart is telling him is the right thing to do, the king gives the order and they bring Daniel out and throw him into the lion's den. And then he says this, this, this part, which I want you to really internalize. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. May your God, may your God, who you continually serve on a daily basis, rescue you. Why is this part of the story so important? You know, there's a lot of scholars here. There's two main thoughts here. Some scholars believe that Darius was cowardly and just put the, the, uh, the deliverance to God in a very cowardly way. While another train of thought believes that Darius through what he saw in Daniel, was acting in good faith. What do you think? Either he was cowardly or acting in good faith. Perhaps the answer is yes. Maybe it's both. I do believe that when, Dan, uh, when Darius says, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you, I don't think he means it sarcastically. I don't think he means it in a negative way. I think he is truly sincere when he says this. I've heard so much about you, about your faith when you were an advisor for the Babylonians. I have seen what you have done for, for my country. And I know you have this great faith in God that you continually serve every single day, three times a day that you pray to him. So now I truly believe Darius realizes that he is not divine, that he realizes he's not a God, that he can't get out of this situation, that he has lost control of this situation. Therefore, he makes such a bold proclamation that says the only one that can get you out of this mess as, as well as me, is your God. That's what he's saying here. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Well, we know the story. We know the story because God is good. God is good even at this moment in history because it tells us in the Bible on verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up because he wants to know what happened to Daniel. Daniel's in the lion's den. Now it's been, what, 16, 20 hours that Daniel has been in the lion's den. Is he alive? 
Darius wants to know. So at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near to the den, he called to Daniel, to Daniel, listen to this part, in an anguished voice. That word anguished really illustrates what he's experiencing internally. He's been fooled. He's been suckered by his other politicians. His vanity allowed him to find himself into the situation. He's lost control. And now someone he really trusted is possibly dead. So in an anguished voice, he calls out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions. I believe he yelled that out in the top of his lungs. I believe he was so concerned, he wanted everyone to hear. And then a voice comes from the pits. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lion. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O King Darius. Wow. Daniel was saved by God. Now, we're looking at this from the eyes of the king not Daniel, what sight that must have been to witness, to witness this miracle that the man that he had put to death is still alive. What that must have been like. Just to give you a quick context about lions, how they were used in the past. They were seen as majestic creatures if you remember the previous kingdom before the uh, Persians was called Babylon and their symbolic animal was the lion. And some scholars believe that these lions that were in this den precedes Darius, that these were the lions that were with the Babylonians and that the Persians weaponized them. We're going to use them to torture our prisoners, to kill them. Lions don't belong in a den. You know what a den is? The translation here is actually, this is more like a cave. Lions are in the open. So there's intentionality here that, that they're sticking a creature that's meant to live in the wild into this tight, small area to drive them crazy, to drive them hungry. That's the context of the story. So these weren't full lions that Daniel had to come across. These were vicious creatures. Yet he was saved by God's grace. So we're looking at this from the eyes of the king, Darius. This must have been a sight. It tells me in verse 23, the king was overjoyed. He celebrated. And he ordered his men, he ordered his soldiers to take Daniel out immediately. And for those that 
told him, he commanded his soldiers to place the satraps, prefects, and governors and, and, and governors, and anyone else that deceived him, that deceived the country, put him into the lion's den. And with that joy, that overwhelming joy that Darius felt, this is what he, this is the next decree that he makes. This is called the proclamation of the living God. And this proclamation of the living God is after this experience, this great miracle that Darius witnessed, he, he makes this bold statement. He says, to all people, actually that's what it says in verse 25. He says this, in, uh, he has this interpreted in every language. He has this written down in every language so all people can, can understand this decree. He makes this, this decree. He says, may you prosper greatly to all the people of Persia. He says, I, Darius, issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. If anything, God rescues and God saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You don't hear the word thanks there, but do you get the feeling of praise in it? The feeling of yada? The feeling of thanksgiving? You see, you thought that I was going to have this sermon, that I was going to preach it from the perspective of Daniel. You probably thought that it's all about Daniel giving thanks. No, the true thanksgiving that we have in this story, the greater thanksgiving, it's not Daniel, it's Darius. It's Darius who has this, this out-of-this-world experience of a, of a wonderful thanksgiving for what he has witnessed that is thanksgiving in the old testament the question i leave with you today is there's many lessons to learn from this story one lesson that i want to draw out that i want you to contemplate on is how are you living your life in the midst of calamity, in the midst of challenge, are you faithfully living your life like Daniel? That still, that you're still going to God, regardless of the challenge that you're facing. It might not even make sense on why you're experiencing it. I would still like you to go to God. Pray to Him for guidance. Pray to Him for deliverance. Pray to Him for direction. Or perhaps you're the one that needs forgiveness from him. Pray for that. In line with that question, as we look at Daniel and how Daniel impacted Darius, I want to ask the question to you is how, through the way you live your life, have you impacted another person's life? Hmm. If you want an out-of-this-world experience for Thanksgiving this year, 
I think it starts with that, faithfulness. Faithfulness to Elohim. Faithfulness to the one true God. And in doing so, your yada, your thankfulness, others will see it, feel it, and they too will experience it.